Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now, please enjoy our sermon at Church on the Hill. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to all you dads out there. Again, happy Father's Day. Just wanted to wish you that. Um, All of you dads, you make such a huge impact, and sometimes you don't even realize the extent of it. So thank you for the impact you have, and just the blessing that is to my dad. Thank you for your impact. Appreciate it. And for me, um, I actually get to display something this morning because I got a gift last night that I was not expecting to get, but I get to be... The number one dad, it says it on my socks. But the weird thing here that I haven't figured out is they put pictures of their faces on my socks, which doesn't feel like a number one dad move because I'm stepping on their faces. Um, And I'm just making them smell my feet literally anywhere I go. So it's, you know, I'm working through the process of how it doesn't necessarily fit. But for all of you dads, uh, happy Father's Day. Thank you guys for being here. We're excited, and hopefully we get it started in a cool way today. So um, what we're doing, actually, before we get into any of that, because it's Father's Day, I feel like I should start with a story that hopefully, it's not, it's not just for dads, but I feel like dads are going to appreciate it a little bit more than, say, moms. Um, so it's a little bit outdoorsy, whatever, but... For those of you guys that don't know, I did youth ministry for a really long time, and one of the things that I used to do was take kids up to Hume Lake. If you don't know what Hume Lake is, it's a huge Christian camp out in like the Sequoia National Forest, Kings Canyon area outside of Fresno, and on the way into Hume, there's this, it's, you drive by the Kings Canyon, and as you would assume, because it's the Kings Canyon, it's massive. It's actually larger than the Grand Canyon. It just doesn't have as steep of cliffs going down into it, but it's huge. The depth is incredible. And there's this place there called Lookout Rock. It's before you get to the camp of Hume Lake, and there's just a little dirt turnout on the road, and it takes this little dirt trail down. It's a little single-file trail, and then it goes out to this massive rock. And the rock protrudes out over the edge of the canyon, and if you walk out on the rock, and it's massive, you can kind of have this view of both sides of the canyon. It's just this incredible place. And so what we would do when we had the students up there is we would take all the girls one night and all the guys a different night at some point throughout the week of being up there, and we would go out to Lookout Rock, and we would just kind of let them stare at the stars and look at the canyon and be amazed by God's creation and then talk about some of the important things of life. And so that was part of the tradition we had. But one of the times we were there... It was the night that the guys were out there, and we're walking back up. We had finished our time out on the rock. It's nighttime. It's super dark. And we're walking back up on this little dirt single-file trail to get back to the little parking area, the little turnout, essentially. And all of the sun, chaos breaks loose. And I'm not talking like a little bit of like, whoa, someone slipped. It's like mayhem breaks loose. The kids that are halfway down, like towards the bottom, towards the middle, just come crushing back down towards the rock. The ones that are at the top are just in full scramble mode going crazy to try to get to the top as fast as they can. And what happened was 
there was a bear down on the side of the trail that started charging up towards the students. The upper half took off so fast that a whole group of them ran to the parking lot, got to a stranger's suburban, did not know this person, climbed up the hood, climbed up the windshield, and they were huddled together on the roof of the suburban. We're talking like a 260-pound high school kid cuddling with his buddies, terrified, because they were so terrified of this bear. And the reason I know that is because I was the bear. (laughs) Yeah, I know. See, the moms are like, you're a terrible person. The dads are like, that's awesome. Yeah, we decided to prank the boys. And so the leaders knew... Okay, I, and I was going to come at them, and the leaders, their job at the bottom was don't let any kids fall off the rock, seemed important. And then the ones at the top, it was just like, good luck, man. You guys think you're going to die in this process. And the funny thing was, it wasn't even a bear suit. It was a gorilla suit. But it turns out when it's dark and you're on all fours and you start charging at them, they think it's a bear. Weirdest thing. And it was hilarious to me. It's actually one of my favorite parts of it is a guy that I had a great relationship with. He's a pastor now. We still have a good relationship. He actually, he was like a big football player. He was a senior at the time. He grabbed this little freshman in front of him and just threw him at the bear and then ran up the hill. I was like, dude, you're a terrible person. He's a pastor now. Um, It's not a joke, but I won't say his name or the church. Um... But it was just amazing to me to go, man, you really thought I was a bear because you don't climb on a stranger's suburban or throw a freshman unless you think that was genuinely a bear. And the reason why I bring that up this morning is because we're in this series called Resilient. And what it is, is we're looking at the seven churches in the area of Asia Minor or Turkey that are talked about in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And this morning, we're looking at the church in Sardis And the reason why I told the bear suit story is because this. Sardis was the bear suit. It says when we start this, in chapter chapter 3, verse 1, it starts by saying this. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. (laughs) Yeah, it's not pulling any punches. I know your works. You have this reputation. You're this big, scary animal, but it's a fake. You're not actually who people think you are. And so that's the way that starts. But before we get into this, let me pray for this morning. And then we need to do a little history lesson on Sardis. Lord, I thank you so much for the fathers in the room. Um, Lord, thanks for the kids that you've given me and the blessing that it is to be able to have a family that we have. And Lord, I thank you so much just for this day and for everyone that's gathered here. Lord, as we dig into your letter to Sardis, I ask that you would reveal what we need to see as a church and what we need to see as individuals to grow in our relationship with you, Lord. Father, I thank you for all the people that are here, and I ask that uh, you would allow me to be a part of what you're already doing. Lord, allow this to hit people however it is that it needs to sit with them because of the work that you're already doing in their lives, Lord. I ask that you would allow these words to come alongside what you've been doing for a long time. Love you, Lord. Amen. So as I said, Sardis is, they essentially get called out. If you guys have been here for the series, you know that most of the chapters start 
with like a, hey, here's a compliment, and you've heard Scott talk about it, the letters to the other churches, there's usually a compliment that starts the letter, and then Jesus transitions to, but you need to work on this. Um, Sardis doesn't get that treatment. Sardis literally gets, I know your works, I know your reputation, you're dead. It's not a good start. And he's not saying you're dead like, I'm going to kill you. What he's saying is, it's a facade, you're a fake, this is not real. But to understand this, we need to get a little history of Sardis first. And so to understand Sardis a little bit better, um, Sardis, geography-wise, actually looks a lot like Northern California, so much so that they had a gold rush. Um, So they, you know, long before us, they had a gold rush. They were actually the first place to mint a coin. And when they minted this golden coin, on the coin, what's stamped on it is a lion attacking another animal. And the reason why there's a lion attacking another animal is because Sardis saw themselves as the lion and they were the king of the jungle. It is a legendary city. It is a prominent city. It is a big deal. It's powerful. They're kind of the ones that they were just, they were the ones on this circle that were big and powerful and everyone kind of thought they were just the place to be. And a lot of the reason why they had that reputation is because in the middle of this city, There's this short little mountain range that pops up, and from the valley floor, it goes up about 1,500 feet, and at these super steep cliffs. Uh, You guys can see the picture right there. So that is the mountain that pops up in the city of Sardis, and what they did is they built a citadel on top of that mountain range, and that's the remains of it. And they they built the citadel on top of that mountain range, and really what that meant is no one could touch them. Because if anything ever happened down in the city, they would retreat up to the citadel. And if you take a look at that, you can go to the next slide too. That's what it looked like. So question for you. If you're the opposing army, do you want to attack that? (laughs) No. Come on, guys. That was not a hard one. That was super simple. Um, That's the definition of when you hear people say, don't fight an uphill battle. That's like as uphill battle as you can possibly get. And so the people of Sardis just had this arrogance about them where they thought no one can ever touch us because if we retreat to that up there, good luck. I think it's going to take all your power and all your might to climb half of this hill. We could just throw one of our lion coins down at you and you're going to go tumbling down and we win. And so Sardis had this arrogance and this prominence and this reputation of just being kind of this indestructible powerhouse. But the crazy thing is this. At one point, they were at war, and the opposing army was down below, and they were in the position that most people got stuck in, where you're looking up at the citadel going, well, not much we can do from this point. But what happened was, and the historical account says that one of the warriors from Sardis dropped his helmet over the edge, just an accident, and it went down to the valley floor. So he left the citadel, went down, got his helmet, went back up. What he did not know was that the opposing army was watching him. There was people from the opposing army, and they had no idea that the trail was where the trail was. So they discovered that there was a trail there because he went down and picked up his helmet. And that night, a crew of them went up, single file, up this trail. They jumped over the walls of Sardis into the citadel, expecting to go to war with the people there that were on guard. And what they found was... No one was on guard. The people of Sardis had become so arrogant and so prideful to say, you know what, no one can touch us up here, that they didn't even have a single person on guard or on lookout. 
So the people jumped the walls, or the opposing army jumped the walls, went in and killed the king or killed the leader of the community, and the people of Sardis woke up and they were under new leadership. There was only bloodshed from the one person. And then the amazing thing is, 200 years later, the same thing happened. Sardis had been rebuilt, they had reestablished, they got too arrogant, they went back to the citadel, and then they figured no one can touch us up here, someone came over the wall, no one was on guard, and again, new management. And so there's this crazy repetitive history of they got so arrogant, they got so prideful, they thought they were so impenetrable that it led to their demise two different times. And this is obviously before Jesus is talking to him or before the letter from John is written to him. But what John does in this letter a few times is he calls back to that, and we're going to point it out. And then the other thing you need to know is this. Most of the churches on this circuit were under persecution. They had struggles. The where, where the temple was was out kind of in the outskirts of town. It was not in the nice area. It was not a good setup. For Sardis, the church had a completely different situation. The temple is the biggest temple of the seven. They probably had the largest, largest congregation of people. They had a reputation as being awesome. The building was huge, and it was directly in the center of town. They faced no persecutions. They had no struggles. So Sardis, to the outside eye, was really like the awesome church. They were the church that everyone was supposed to be like. And here's what Jesus says to him. Now that we have the context, we're going to dive into this passage. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And to the angel of the, of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you were dead. So Jesus calls him out and says, I know your deeds. I know what you've done. I know your reputation. It's all fake. It's all hollow. It's all a facade. None of this is real. You're a bunch of hypocrites. And then it moves on. It says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And the thing where it says, I have not found your works complete is a little bit strange. Because if you know the Bible at all, you're going to think back and go, wait a second. Works are not supposed to be what gets you a right relationship with God. Like the whole New Testament says it's not your works. It's about your relationship. It's about Christ's forgiveness, not your deeds. And so this seems like it doesn't fit, but what it is, is it's, you have to know the history again. There was a temple of Artemis in Sardis, and what happened was they built this temple. They had not completed the temple all the way, and they opened it to the public and said, we're going to finish this temple in the future. And then guess what happened? They didn't finish it. You guys ever had a construction project in your house or like a little something you did in your house where you remodeled? And then there was that trim piece, and you're like, oh, I'm going to get to that trim piece right at the end of this. And then like 20 years later, you're like, oh, that trim piece. Yeah. So that's what they did. This is that temple. They didn't finish it. And so really it became kind of, it became a joke for the whole surrounding community of that era, is that it was the unfinished temple. And so what Jesus is saying to them is, it's not that you haven't done the right works, it's that you're not complete. You never brought to completion this relationship. We're, I'm supposed to have your heart. We're supposed to have this connection. There's supposed to be a motive, but instead you have works and you have a reputation, but you're hollow. You haven't done what, you have not completed what you're supposed to be. And you look impressive on the outside, but it's a facade. You're a fake. There's no love. 
And then it moves on. It says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. And I hope you guys are seeing the, you know, the call to history that Jesus puts on him there when he says, I will come like a thief, and you will not know. Wake up, or I'm going to come like a thief. You guys see what he did there? Seriously? Gosh. Guys. I know you're thinking about golf later, but geez. Uh, So Jesus is directly calling to the history going, okay, you guys know this. You fell asleep and you were taken over by something you didn't want to be taken over by because you were not awake and alert. And so he's calling out to them to say, wake up, change what you're doing, or I will come just like those opposing armies came and I will have to clean house. I will have to change some things. And so what I want us to do now is we look at the calls that Jesus has. He has these commands to this community or to this church. And I think the question we have to ask is this. This is written to a church. So what does this mean for our church? But at the same time, this has personal application. So what does it mean for us? What are the commands? What are the things that Jesus is calling this church of Sardis to? And the first one that I think we have to look at is this. In verse 2, it says, wake up wake up. The easiest way to put that in our modern terms is this, quit living in denial. If your church is just built on, man, you have a reputation and you have a big church and you're this really big place that, you know, someone in the past did some really great things and you're going to act like there's nothing wrong or that everything is just fine just because of what it used to be in the past, wake up. You're living in denial. You're faking it. And for some of you on the personal note, for some of us, it's Jesus saying to us, if you're going to act like the things that you're doing, the beliefs that you hold, the actions that you have, the way you act at work, the way you treat your kids, the way you treat your spouse, if you're going to act like all of that is fine and you're going to try to justify it, he's saying, wake up. Quit living in denial and acting like you can live your life in a certain way and act like it's all okay and act like everything's going to go well and act like you're in a right relationship with God and expect there to be no consequences or no fallout or no negative. Wake up. You're living in denial. That's not how it's going to work. And the next piece of this that I think is huge is the reputation management. It says you have the reputation of being alive. And I think the question we have to ask there as the church is, have we gotten to a place where we do things because of what it looks like to the outside community instead of because of the heart that Jesus has called us to have? When we have a bunch of homeless people up on the hill and we cut their hair and we give them food and we give them all these different supplies and all these different things, are we doing it because we want to take pictures of it and put it on the website and go check this out, look at all the good we're doing for the community? Or are we doing it because we genuinely care about those people and we want to go, hey, there's a different way of doing life and you need to change your perspective and you need to realize that God has a plan and a design and a desire for you and he wants to have a relationship for you, with you, and he has something amazing and we want to tell you about that. We want to tell you about the love of Christ. When we send a missions trip or a team down to Guatemala like they are right now, are we sending them there because as a church we go, well, mission seems important, and if you don't do it, you get the reputation of being selfish. 
Or do we actually care about the people of Guatemala and do we think, man, we have been blessed in all these incredible ways. And if I have been blessed, then I'm called to be a blessing to those that are less fortunate. Do we actually care? Do we spend time praying for them? Do we go, God, would you please show them that we have a desire, that you have a desire to meet them and to change their situation and to let them know that they are just as loved and just as important as your, in your kingdom as anyone else? And on a personal note, are we the type of people that do stuff just so you can take a picture of it and put it on your Instagram so you can have people think you're a certain person? Or do you genuinely do the right thing because you feel like God has called you to do those things, and so out of obedience, you're going to do that? Beyond that, I think this reputation management piece can be one of the biggest ones for us. Because truthfully, I think the most dangerous spot is for those of you that have been Christians for a while. If you've been a Christian for a long time, or maybe even more so, if you've started to have leadership roles in the church. If you serve, if you lead the kids, if you lead a community group, if you're a pastor, or the hardest seat, if you're the lead pastor. How much can it creep in and just go, man... How much do I have to manage what people think of me? How much can I not say or not say what's inside of me because people have these expectations and these thoughts and these ideas of who I am, and I have to continue to be that person because if I don't, and we fill in the blanks. We have this idea that we have to have our reputation management as this priority. And what happens is we end up asking ourselves the question, what are people going to think instead of asking, what is God calling me to? We become more concerned with the fallout and the opinions and the ideas of those around us instead of going, God, what is it that you think about this situation? What is my identity because of you? And following Jesus becomes reputation management instead of actually following and being obedient to what he's called you to. And it's such a dangerous trap because if we're honest, what happens is this. It's a slippery slope. You do something and then you feel like, or there's something inside of you and it just, you feel empty or there's a struggle or you've done something, whatever it is, you know that it's there. But you feel like, I can't tell anyone. And then because of the guilt and the shame, other things start to manifest and start to come out because you're trying to cover it and you're trying to justify it and you're trying to make it okay. And you go farther and farther down this road. And the farther and farther you get down the road, what takes place is the more and more you feel like you could never tell. The more and more you go, what if people discovered this? And Satan's grip gets tighter and tighter and tighter because you're so convinced, I cannot let anyone know this. And what happens is you're stuck in isolation and you're alone. And the whole way on the other side, God's going, I have defined you and you're supposed to be over here. But we get stuck with reputation management and it kills us. The last part that I see that I think is important in this first section of wake up is this. They just get lazy. It says, I have not found your works complete in my sight. You just didn't finish the temple. You just got lazy. 
And I think the call to this church is you're a big church. You're successful. Someone did enough to create this movement that got you enough that you now have this huge building in the center of town. There's no persecution. You've obviously won a lot of followers. You have the biggest congregation there is. And then what happens sometimes is you just get lazy. And what I mean by lazy is this. Instead of joining that movement that first won your heart and pursuing God and seeing what he's called you to and getting involved with the messy stuff that he puts in front of you, you go, let's just do what we've always done. Let's just do what got us here. Whatever events, whatever programs, whatever the way we taught, the way we did worship, all those different things, let's just hit repeat and then try to make it a little bit better each time. And you start to lose the heart that you had at the start that got you to that place of success to say, God, what do you want me to be a part of? And on an individual basis, I think this happens the same way. You started where God won your heart and you had this, you had this time with him and you have this relationship with him and it's invigorating and it's awesome. And in that, you start these habits. Maybe you did this in Rooted. You started these habits and you had this great experience and everything else. But then over time, it's just kind of dwindled and become more of a chore. And you see things as a chore now. And now it's just more like you read your Bible and there's not really anything in it, but you check the box because the chores are done and it just becomes lazy faith. And really, we should be hitting our knees and going, God, what is it that you want from me? What is it that you're calling me to be a part of? But instead we go, I'm just going to go back to that Bible study or read that thing, or maybe I'll join another group or whatever else. But instead of taking the opportunity to do something new, we get lazy and we just default into what we've always done in the past. The second thing that I think comes out of this is just to be real. It says in verse 3, repent. Um, it's just to be honest. Often we get so stuck, like I said, in reputation management that we're not truthful of our current condition. We have issues in the inside. We have things that are broken in our family. We have struggles. We have all these different things, but we come to church and we throw up the facade just like this church is doing, and we act like, hey, it's all okay. We're good. And Jesus is just saying, quit putting up the facade. Quit faking this. Be real. Be honest with where you are. The next part of it is I think there's a lack of wholeness or integrity. When he looks at the temple and he says, your works are not done, sometimes we get to this place where the work is not done and we know that we're lacking in areas. We know that there's areas of our life where we've just hardened our hearts and we're not going to give it to God. There's areas where we go, God, I'll give you this, but I will not forgive this person for what they have done. They have wronged me too much. I will not let that go. And we're not whole. There's not integrity. There's a lacking area because we just hold on to this. Or maybe we go, God, you can have this part of my life, but finances are mine. I'm not entrusting that part to you. And there's a conviction there because there's a lack of integrity and a lack of wholeness. And I think what God calls us to, the last thing in that section is this, it's to repent. God just wants us to be honest in front of him and in front of other people and say, God, I've fallen short in this area, and I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to change my ways because I know that I've fallen short, so just repent. The third thing that I think is a call or a command from this is this, 
It's remember it and keep it and strengthen what remains. And the strengthen what remains is such a brilliant piece of advice, and I think it applies in so many places, and we don't even realize the application of it. But to strengthen what remains is not just advice for the church or just your personal relationship. This, to me, is brilliant advice for everything that's so easy to skim over. But if you are struggling, if you are dry, if you are hollow, if things seem fake, often what we do, and this is in your business, in your relationship with your spouse, in your relationship with your kids, in your relationship with God, as a church, all those things, often what we do when we're struggling is we look at the mess that's in front of us and we go, oh my gosh, I have to fix all of this. We have to repair all this brokenness and all this baggage and we have to repair all the damage and all the messed up things that exist. And Jesus' call to this church is so incredibly wise. And the call is this, strengthen what remains. Don't go try to fix everything. You're already running on empty. Where's your energy to fix everything going to come from? To me, it's the image of like a garden where almost everything is dead and gone. But in the middle of the garden, there is one plant that's green and it's producing. So what's he telling you to do? He's saying, go water that plant, go fertilize that plant, go invest in that plant and let the life come. And as it grows and as things get positive and you get filled up, then start to work on the other stuff. If this is your relationship with your spouse, don't try to fix all the broken things. Don't try to have a conversation about every mean thing that was ever said or all the hurtful things that have ever come out of your mouth. Instead, find the area where there's a spark, where things are still good. If it's date night, do a bunch of date nights. If it's going back to where you first met and remembering when you got engaged and remembering the excitement of a honeymoon or something else, save your money and go back to that same place and look at the pictures and tell the stories, but go to the place where there is life and fan it into flame. Take the spark and put everything into it. In your relationship with your kids, your spouse, God, whatever it is, do the things that give you life. And we get this so wrong sometimes. In our relationship with God, we fall short, we feel dry, we feel broken, and we go, okay, I know what I need to do. I need to read more, and I need to pray more, and I need to join another community group, and I have to do everything I can to serve in every ministry. And you know what happens? You get to like week three, and you're like, oh, I don't want to go. Yeah, you laugh because you're like, oh, I've been there. Me too. But you just get stuck and you're so burnt out. And I think what Jesus is saying in this passage is instead of trying to do a whole bunch more, go to what gives you life. If you get life from having a conversation with a friend about something important, go have the conversation. If it's spending time in nature alone with God, go get alone with God. Find what works for you and invest in that and pour into that. And as life comes back, then address the other thing. And the last part that I think is also incredibly important is this. In verse 3, it says, Remember then what you received and heard and keep it. Remember how God won your heart at the start. 
Remember the way that he drew you into relationship. Remember the way that you felt. Remember the truth of the gospel that though you fell short and chose your own ways and went your own direction, God stepped in and said, child, you don't deserve it, but I'm going to sacrifice myself for you in order to have relationship with you. And because of my forgiveness for you, you are pure and forgiven. The blame that you deserve will never be placed upon you because I took it upon me. I'm forgiving you and I'm setting you free and you're loved and you will always be mine. Remember the truth. Go back to the start. Go back to the foundation and hold fast to it. There's a famous theologian who's incredibly smart, a guy named Karl Barth, and he wrote a theology book that's like that thick. And there's a story that he was at a college, and he was in a Q&A at the college, and they asked him, they said, man, you just compute, or completed this thought theology book that's just so full of so much wisdom. If you could boil it down, what is the single most important thing that you've learned? And the story goes that he responded, the truth of what I learned on my mother's knee as a child. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. All this deep theology, all this incredible thinking, everything else, what matters most is the foundational truth that you're forgiven and that you're loved. And if you're struggling, go back to it. Remind yourself every single day. Climb the gospel in your life every single day and remember how loved you are. And it finishes with this. In verse 4 through 5, it says, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. In other words, they haven't joined in with the sin. They're still pure. And they will walk with me in white, which means they will be forgiven. For they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And in other words, what this is saying is, if you wake up, if you repent like I have called you to, if you change like I've called you to, then there is this future ahead of you. You will be fully forgiven. You will be clothed in white. You are completely pure, never held responsible for the things that you've done, and you will walk with me. And you will walk with me forever because I will never blot your name out of the book of life. That's the greatest news we're ever going to receive. And then he says, I will claim you in front of everyone, in front of God, angels, and everyone, everyone else. You will be claimed as mine. And for so many of you, you've walked through so many tragedies and so much hurt, and you've had so much betrayal, and you've had so many people leave you. What we have to focus on is the truth that Jesus has given us here of, I am not going to betray you, and I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to put you in that position, and I'm not going to turn my back on you. You will never walk alone. You have been set free, child, in your mind. For eternity, your name will never be taken from my book. You are mine, and forever I will stand in front of every single person and say, I am associated with that one. That one's mine, and I will never deny it. And we have to hold that truth, the truth that changes your heart and allows the love of God to get in and to really sink in and go, I am forever with God. Never to do anything in isolation alone again. And as we close this up, I think what this means for us as a church and for us as an individual is this. 
think churches start as this great movement. And there's all this excitement and all this energy and people's lives are changing. And at the same time, it's a complete mess. It's so disorganized and it's so crazy. And so what, they, what we do is we turn it, we make it organized and we turn it into an organization. And then once it becomes an organization, it becomes an institution. And the danger of once you become an institution is then you can become a museum. And in a museum, everything is orderly and everything has its place and the carpet is always clean and the things are blocked off and everything's labeled and everything goes where it's supposed to and there's no chaos. But there's also usually no life. For those of you that love museums, sorry. But there's usually not much life. And on the other side, you have a movement. And with the movement, it's crazy. And there's chaos. And there's things going every direction. But there's life change. And it's awesome. But it's also really difficult. Because let's just be honest. Sometimes people come to church. And maybe they don't parent very well. And then they drop their kids off in a classroom. And now those kids are with your kids. And you're like, wait a second. That kid's not a good influence. And I'm supposed to be a church. And they're supposed to be a good influence. And it gets messy but there's life. And even though people don't fit exactly, there's life and it's a movement and the carpets get messy and kids run down the halls and they scream and there's chaos. But there's life change. And on the other side, you have a museum and everything is clean and the building is big and everything has its place and everything is organized and everything goes how it's supposed to go, but there's not much life. And I think for us, we're being challenged as a church to say, do I want to be a part of a museum or do I want to be a part of a movement or do I want to be a part of a museum? And on a personal level, you're being challenged to say, do you want to be part of a movement where there's chaos and it's messy or do you want to be a part of a museum where you just keep doing what's worked? Because in the movement, you have to follow God and go, God, what is it that you've called me to? And do you really want me to step in and try to help that relationship? Are you really calling my finances to be moved or to be used in that way? I don't even know if I have the finances for that. But there's life. There might be chaos, but there's life. And I think the challenge is which one do you want to be? Which church do you want to be a part of? Which relationship do you want to have? And it closes in verse 6 by just saying this. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what that means is this. Don't just let this go in one ear and go out the other. This is meant to be heard and applied. There's something that's a call to this church and to your life. What are you supposed to do with this? And you get to figure that out. Because I don't want to be a part of a museum where I tell you what it's supposed to be. You got to hit your knees and ask God, God, what are you calling me to? Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for being active in our lives. Lord, you are there, and if we seek you, you reveal yourself. I ask that we would have the boldness to seek you. And Lord, that we wouldn't only seek, that we would listen and we would respond and we would do whatever it is that you call us to and we would experience the life that you have for us, Lord. Lord, you have such incredible life for us, and I thank you for that. Thank you for all the dads in this room, and thank you for being the loving father to every single one of us, Lord. Amen.